0: All right, well, it's my pleasure to introduce Richard. Um, He's just had a chance to meet him a few weeks ago and and I'm really looking forward to hearing more from you, Richard. Take all the time that you need and we look forward to to hearing from you. It's all yours. Thank you, thanks. My name is Richard and I'm new to the group, but old to many of the reasons for being here. Thanks for inviting me to speak. I began my healing process in the 1980s with the advent of self-help movements, but it wasn't until nine years ago that I relinquished drugs and alcohol, and this is the first meeting that I've been invited to speak at. When I first thought about this situation, I almost dove into a neurodiverse hyper-focus to put down every detail, but I resisted. Because although I'm experienced in analysing and presenting information, I lack what most presenters here seem to have, a heartfelt sense of belonging. I wanted to speak off the top of my head, from my heart, but I ended up writing it anyway. In my addictions, I did have a sense of belonging, and that was new to me. Until then, I'd never belonged to a group or even to myself. I was dissociated, I had PTSD. And in recovery, although I complied with the 12 steps to get started, I still do not feel part of the AA fellowship. My lack of belonging has three root causes. The first is how my brain is wired. I'm neurodiverse, which is an inclusive term for people with a variety of hardwired thought patterns, including autism, ADHD, and other spicy elements. About 20% of people are neurodivergent. One qu- consequence of my neurodiversity is a lack of regard for what other people think of me. I never succumb to peer pressure. When most neurotypical people don't want to rock the boat, I'm a contrarian who blithely challenges whatever lacks clarity. If I don't get it, I want to know more about it. I just won't let it go. Well, I'm learning to let it go. Far from having a you scratch my back, uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours mentality, I would likely wonder why the fuck are you scratching my back? Leave me alone. The reason I don't, the second reason I don't belong is because I never felt I belonged in my family. My mother told me several times that when I was first offered to her as a newborn, she told the nurse to take me away. Doing it was bad enough, but her honesty without kindness was cruel. I never bonded with her. Even under hypnosis, I cannot recreate any eye contact with her and stare only into cold glass beads. My first memory of freezing in fear was when she sent me to stand at the top of the stairs and wait for her to sharpen the kitchen knife so she could cut my willy off. I could fill a meeting with other examples of why I didn't fit in my family, but I'll leave it at that. I left at 16 to go to sea, and that's where I started writing. The third reason I haven't belonged in recovery is the roots. I just Don't express typical attitudes. This presentation isn't a typical presentation. And the way I express myself has not been comfortably received. I didn't feel free to share anything about myself that is not typical. I am, for example, a writer. I never felt comfortable sharing what I wrote about recovery or spirituality. But what I objected to most is rigidity. When they were written, the Twelve Steps were brilliant, inspired, and they remain life-saving for millions. But they were intended as adaptable suggestions, not sacred texts. Having said that, strict adherence uh, adherence to the Steps worked for millions, and without them, without that, that at the beginning, I might not have stayed sober for long. So it's me that doesn't fit in, rather than everything that's wrong. When I was still a happy drunk, the fleeting, camaraderie of in, the fleeting camaraderie of inebriation hid my isolation. Here's a poem that expresses my alienation before seeking help. It's about dancing alone to a jukebox at 3 a.m. in the Tadpole Lounge, Boynton Beach, Florida, 1982. Why does my loathing night attract me so? Why choose its deadening blues? Why do I sound my saxophone emotions in such pain at boundaries of sanity where no rules exist to join or conform my random parts into a shape or size that I can recognise? Why do this to myself? Why rediscover hell? Why does mad night attract my skittish feet that itch to dance to jukebox tunes with nothing to lose but a few books and closing tie, My pitching prances lead me on through no one's land to reel along the thrill of rifts bound by the force of massive cords that make my clueless pace forget the imminence of my distress. And when my mind is gone and done, my feet still boogie on alone, into the void, giddy from excess, In Rhythmical Oblivion. Thanks to my recovery. My continual recovery. Contrast this with a recent night piece I wrote for a sick friend. It's called May Stillness Surround You. And it's based on a hymn. Any of you with an evangelical background may recognize. It has been from May God's Blessing Surround You. A uh, Billy Graham. uh, Crusade hymn. My version is. May stillness surround you tonight without any worry or fright. Surround you within and surround you about. May stillness surround you tonight. May kindness enrich me each day. A guide for my stumbling way. Enrich me within and enrich me without. May kindness enrich me today. May gratitude rise on each dawn enlighten the challenge of morn, rise all within, raise all within, and raise all about, may gratitude rise on each dawn, may stillness surround us tonight, without any worry or fright, surround us within, and surround us about, may stillness surround us tonight. I'm not as isolated as I used to be, I have a few good friends, belong in a stable, loving relationship with a sprawling extended family, and I no longer carry onerous burdens. But I don't feel that I belong in groups. This group couldn't have been more welcoming, and Mark has encouraged me tremendously. So despite it being a scary prospect, I hope I will feel a sense of belonging here soon. The other aspect of my recovery is not group-centred but an individual personal exploration. And this has been a miraculous journey of spiritual and secular faith. I don't remember the idealistic cause about which I was fervently espousing my adolescent convictions when my bluntly skeptical mother from Northern England replied, we all need faith in something I suppose She turned out to be right. Her wry, homespun intuition reflects abiding wisdom that is scientifically valid. To feel better, we must trust something. Religious people place faith in God. Scientists trust science. Atheists find faith in atheism. Sadists seek cruelty. Addicts die for drugs and chocoholics tuck into chocolates. Whatever we have faith in directs our thoughts impacts our feelings, and affects our behavior. By the way, none of my appeals to science contradict religion if you believe God made the brain. The power of healing is a mystery. Neurologists do not know what healing is except as changes in neuron circuitry. Even conscious thought is understood only as firing neurons. How the subconscious ruminates is beyond our comprehension. It is, however, manifest in a beneficial calm realm that neurologists call the default mode. My default mode probing does not ask why, but what is the lesson? Our bodies, including our brains, are designed for healing, and soothing calmness with caring attention helps all healing, including the brain, just as we can run better with a whole leg so our brains function better with a whole mind an unobstructed neural circuit this approach came about despite or because of many of my own because of my own unwilling need for faith i was persistently fixed in fractured ptsd thinking fragmented adhd compulsions strained intemperate moods and killer addictions additionally My neurodiverse thinking is baffled by normal manifestations of typical social life. But despite the evidence, I would rather have done without faith. However, lacking trust in something positive, I was a hot mess. My chaotic life was dangerously unmanageable. By denying faith in a healing possibility, I would have ended up in hospital, prison or the morgue. While training in Florida as a child protective investigator, I realized that I should investigate my own childhood. I exhibited every behavioral indicator of a severely abused child, but I became enlightened about my state from a singer in a blues band. We were not lovers, but as I woke up with the sunrise, this is in Florida, but as I woke up with the sunrise after a cocaine night in a motel room, and restlessly tried to waken as she mumbled, I have a degree in early childhood development, and you're acting like a six-year-old demanding his mother's attention. The light went off in my head. I replied, you're right. Why has no one told me that before? And she said, I've told you now. Go away. Come back at three with some sushi. (laughs) Okay. And that's really what set me off, because it really hit home. It just made sense. Yeah, I was like a six-year-old. Eventually, I could take no more of my tormenting demons, senseless, harmful blunderings, and ridiculous shenanigans. I snapped at 4 a.m. in the parking lot of an all-night bar. Snap is the only way to express what happened. I can still hear that snap. I wrote a flash creative nonfiction piece about the circumstances. It's the same bar as I was dancing in. Vehicular Revenge. In the dingy 4am parking lot with full headlamps on, she drives the beat-up Dodge Dart at me. Instinctively, I leap sideways and throw my bicycle to smash the windshield. She swerves and the drunken crowd stumbles out of her way while she veers along the sidewalk. My bike falls off the hood when she bounces onto the road where she's, when the car bounces onto the road, when it stops, she gets out and wanders into the darkness toward the beach. I stagger over, prop my mangled bike against her car and stumble toward the beach park. It would never have happened if I hadn't asked her to spot me for a drink. But I had used my last book on the cab home because she'd left me stranded in a Deerfield Beach bar. So on my bicycle, I had searched for her and found her at the Tadpole Lounge. I asked her to spot me the drink. It's closing time, she said. Fuck off. I admired her butt cheek on the bar stool and stabbed it with my lit cigarette. She looked more stunned than angry. I fled, but after that, I guess she decided on the vehicle of revenge. Before cops might arrive, I scurry to the beachside park, and sure enough, there she is, snoring on top of a picnic table. I lie on the table's bench beside her, below her, and close my eyes, knowing that tomorrow she will remember none of it. So that was a kind of lifestyle I was in in South Florida in the 1980s. I had to change and started therapy. My first therapy helped me to identify myself as the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz. I was heartless. After a while in therapy and by tapping into emergent 1980s self-help programs, I realized a definite, though undefined, creative and healing force had begun to help my mind cope better. Crucially, I learned that ancient wisdom and neuroscience agree on the importance of inner peace for greater well-being. Quietness and calm help all healing. I learned to find inner peace, the inner peace of relaxation that activates the vagus nerve. With the deep vagus relaxation, innate healing and insights emerged. They developed from somewhere within a sense of dormant wholeness. I cannot explain it. I can only advocate for its benefits and describe how I tap it. In this stillness, a feast of happiness hormones sometimes serve a banquet of bliss. The hormone high I chased with drugs. It's now I can get it free now. I mean that—that—that's that, what we're chasing—is what is a, actually a natural um, phenomenon? This whole state of sublime reconciliation to self and the world is variously called the default mode, the state of grace, Valhalla, Nirvana, flow, enlightenment, or a great high, I guess. Or another term to denote a hypnotic state of being where ego dissolves and experience is whole and harmoniously good. All is one in the stillness of do nothing, think nothing, know nothing. This wholeness occurs naturally when drifting into sleep, awakening slowly, meditating or just zoning out. I tap it by relaxing my body to calm my mind. And I focus on being ready to change. With practice, my inner stillness grows to fulfill increasingly substantial aspects of my life. My stillness is the starting place for my mind to generate positive, peaceful attributes such as gratitude, kindness and generosity. As my mind becomes more open to affirmative thoughts, it generates more happiness hormones, dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, and oxytocin, all thanks to about 90 billion neurons with malleable circuits, neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity reorganizes my brain's neuron paths for greater wholeness, a combination of equanimity, happiness, and peace. Let me reiterate that by relaxing my body, my mind becomes calm. Without its hardwired neural circuits, my brain makes new ones. My hardwired neuron circuitry produces sustained. My hardwired neuron circuitry produces sustained and thus damaging high stress tide of cortisol and adrenaline. Cortisol and adrenaline are good for us to, to keep us out of harm's way, but when it's a lifestyle choice or a lifestyle presence. It's harmful. With stillness, my neuron circuits produce more happiness hormones. Simple if you know how, as the say, old saying goes. As my early faith grew in, in healing grew, I did not hold back. I read many books about different beliefs, explored numerous sects, delved into various denominations and experienced a variety of religions. I attended 12-step meetings, which were expanding to accommodate over 50 addictions. I also watched online psychology and neuroscience stuff. I heard my mother bemoaning, you never know when to stop. You always take everything to extremes. And she's right. Eventually, neuroplasticity became my major guiding influence but his findings confirm principles that have been around since at least 1500 BCE. Despite all the embellishments, it boils down to the abiding wisdom that we function most healthily in the wisdom of a relaxed body, quiet mind, wholeness. And it takes practice. I will not describe my first blundering ADHD attempts at focused stillness, that involve more curses than patience. I'm still not good at sustained stillness. That doesn't matter. It influences me more and more and setbacks are part of the process. We do not just walk away from our dysfunctions. We keep going back to learn more. I define recovery as coping better next time. I've also realized the importance of gratefully enjoying small improvements rather than striving for enduring perfection. Perfection defies us because there is no ultimate resolution. As my wife Roberta says, we never quite get it because there is no it to get. The meaning of truth, for example, has meant unchanging concrete fact for only a few hundred years. For most of human history, it indicated something that is dependable, constant, and thus proven to be true, as in long lasting love and loyalty. By any definition, Truth is a fluid concept of growing awareness with new information, our positions change and just because I think something doesn't mean I'm right. just because I think something doesn't mean that I am right as we intellectualize and then internalize new notions of what appears as truth, our brains rewire neural circuits and we develop fresh realizations. but wisdom is beyond truth other people can help with truths but wisdom verifiable accountable and true in the old sense of the word grows from within and we all have it in us one of my writing interests is to retell old texts as if they still belong in an oral tradition and were never set in ink this excerpt derived from the book of job describes my state of being before I began my healing adventures. Words fail me, my lips cannot shape hope. I search the depths but find no solace. There is no place to hide from this terror. Fear overrides my reason, my anguished mind longs for unknown kindness. May the spirit of mercy abort the night I was born when my innocence bonded with icy eyes that night spawned my awful story. My first cry inseminated my despair, devoid of compassion, a night without embracing warmth, where my dank, hellish separation deserted who I should have been. When I was conceived, procreating passion spawned only deception. Craving moans articulated trauma. Orgasms shriek, shrieks articulated pain. That sordid night eclipsed all joy and buried hope. No light of day breaks that night of horror when my mother's womb accepted the seeds to grow suffering. Why didn't the semen just spill out and stain the sheep? Why didn't she get an abortion or slaughter me at birth? Why did her knees open up first to receive my conception, then to let out my isolating birth, then close as a lap on which to nurse me? Why did I suck that toxic drain? Why did I even cry? She gave no comfort. I could have lain silent and slept forever. Then I would have found some safety. Misery could have died in my sleep, never to see the light again. I long for the death, for death more than people long for success. Their striving brings them energy and challenges, but I achieve nothing. I cannot even perish in my own desolation. Why face the light of day that brings more cruel pain? Sighs are my only nourishment. Groans bring barren release. What I feared most has happened, and that which I utterly dread has won. I have no peace and never rest. My tangled mind tortures me, and turmoil emotions numb all but aggravation. In that state, without stillness, I could not heal. Stillness is a proven source of healing and improved equanimity. And for me, creating and refining my stillness is an art. With guidance and practice, my developing stillness encourages more happiness, hormones, serotonin, dopamine, endorphins and oxytocin. Kindness, generosity and gratitude wisely nurture them. My calmness also reduces the extent of stress chemicals, adrenaline and cortisol. These physiological changes began to take place immediately and become more usual with practice. Early in recovery, along with the long haul of sustained improvements, I noticed dif- a difference in my writing. In contrast to how I'd once felt like Job, I wrote this derived from the 23rd Psalm. And this is my closing piece. There is a source to heal me. I can depend on that. Even while I crave what harms me, when I trust my unknown source, a healing power dispels my struggles and brings stillness. Stillness strengthens me for hope to revive. Morality improves. Even though compulsions return, I deal with them in new ways, for stillness never fails. While raw habits attack me, calmness nurtures me. Calm, confidence stabilizes my outlook. Despite my frequent, intense failures, I am rewarded as if I am perfect. But I cannot understand how or why. I cannot understand how or why, but kindness and generosity encourage me. Gratitude lightens me. I feel safe in new stillness and will cope better next time. So that is my definition of recovery. Coping better next time. Thanks for letting me share. Hope you enjoyed it.